Welcome to hour two of the Jason Rand Show. Josh Josh Hammer, can't even pronounce my own name. Josh Hammer filling in for Jason today. Always grateful to, to be on the airwaves of KTTH Seattle. We got a great program in store for you for hour two. Let's take a listen to what's trending. What's trending? National. So we spent the whole first hour of the program talking about Trump, DeSantis, the hurricane, the Trump legal drama, his arraignment or lack thereof in Georgia and all of that. There's there's also a lot other events, a lot else going on at the national level outside of the fairly narrow confines of presidential politics. Now, there was this horrible, horrible clip that went around just yesterday of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. So Congress is in recess. They're in recess till after Labor Day. So he's back back in Kentucky. And he, he, he very awkwardly froze at the podium for uh, roughly 30 seconds or so. Painful to watch. Uh, genuinely painful to watch something like this. But if you're sitting there thinking, didn't I see this clip already? It was like a month ago. The answer is no. It's now happened twice. The first one was at the Capitol in D.C. The rest of Senate Republican leadership, John Thune of South Dakota, John Barrasso of Wyoming, folks like that, they were there at the lectern next to McConnell and kind of ushered him off stage. Something similar happened here. Again, painful to watch this. I, I, I don't necessarily recommend it, frankly, for... The faint of heart. But we have to start asking some tough questions. You know, McConnell took a bad fall, a very bad fall, earlier this year. He ended up missing months or where he was bedridden. All this is happening after that. And we're not hearing a whole lot of details. I mean, we have no, virtually nothing in the way of details about kind of medical diagnosis or anything like that. After the first time this happened, a month ago or so, the consensus seemed to be mini-strokes. I'm not a doctor. I, I couldn't tell you exactly how a mini-stroke is different from a full stroke, things like that. I saw some other medical terms kind of bandied about this time after what happened yesterday. But seemingly everywhere you look in America, we are led by old people. I mean, there's no one who fits the description better than the president of the United States himself, the doddering dolt from Delaware, the senile octogenarian Joseph R. Biden, who is literally diminishing mentally and physically before our eyes. Before our eyes. I mean, how many falls going up and down stairs has Joe Biden taken? Or not going up and down stairs. He was giving out diplomas at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs back in June. It's either late May or I think it was very early June. I don't even think he was on stairs then. He was just walking to the podium or something like that. Trips and falls. He tripped and falled going up and down the steps of the plane numerous times. He said any number of ridiculous, totally out of place 
moments. I mean, do you guys remember the God God save the Queen man, the way he ended that press conference? I mean, like, what the heck? What the heck? You know, China is flying hypersonic missiles around the world in a fraction of a second, which they did about a year and a half, two years ago. Putin's obviously feeling free to gobble up swaths of Ukraine. Iranian regime is getting as close as ever to a nuclear weapon. I mean, the threats around the world are real. We have a horrific, horrific situation on the southern border, an unprecedented migrant crisis. We'll get into that a little bit in the third hour of the program with Ryan Gerdusky. The, the problems in America are very real. And the president of the United States, when he is not going to Rehoboth, Delaware, to his beach house in Delaware, which he seemingly does every weekend, when he's not there, he ain't doing the job well. He's barely communicating. Truly. Four-decade high inflation, the Afghanistan situation, horrible stuff. I mean, earlier this week, just thinking on, on, on Afghanistan just for a second, I think it was the New York Times that had this absolutely heartbreaking story of a translator in Kabul, Afghanistan, someone who helped the U.S. forces there going back 10, 15 years. The U.S. military in Afghanistan, as it does in many parts of the world, necessarily depended on translators for large swaths of their duty, intercepting Taliban radio signals, things like that. And this week, the New York Times story on this man who's whose name I'm, I'm unfortunately forgetting, is essentially that he's in Kabul. He's desperately trying to get the U.S. State Department to get him a special visa to come, as the Biden administration said that they would do for translators. And it's just not going to happen. Like The bureaucratic holdup is, is taking way too long, and the upshot of the, of the article is that the Taliban knows who this individual is, and if they see him, they will kill him. So it's potentially just a waiting game until this translator who helped the U.S. military is just killed by the Taliban due to no other reason than sheer government incompetence. Now, by the way, I, I, I am quite hawkish and restrictionist on the issue of immigration, but the idea that we should not be bringing in these highly vetted translators who genuinely, genuinely prove themselves – over and over again by helping our forces on the ground there, and then we're just going to abandon them to die at the hands of the Taliban. I mean, I think, frankly, that even the most hawkish of immigration restrictionists should really be on board with getting these folks safe passage. Anyway, the, whole, the point here is that Biden is totally out to lunch when it gets to that. And then, as we just discussed in the first hour of the program, his most likely opponent in the 2024 general election is a 77-year-old facing 91 criminal accounts in four separate jurisdictions who 64% of Americans tell pollsters they will definitely not or probably not support. I mean, Mitch McConnell, moreover, is one of only 19 – I mean he's one of 19 lawmakers over the age of 80. 19. Uh, that, that, that is a lot. You know, the term is gerontocracy. We, we have a geriatric ruling class in the United States of America. We are increasingly governed 
by people who should not be in a position to govern. Again, this clip with Mitch McConnell, it's, it's, it's very difficult to watch. Joe Biden did say he spoke with Mitch McConnell recently, though. Let's go, let's go ahead and listen to that. I spoke to Mitch. He's a friend. Uh, um, and I, uh, I, I spoke to him uh, uh, today. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, he was his old self on the telephone. Uh, and uh, having um, a little understanding of... Uh, dealing with uh, neurosurgeons and people and one of the leading women in my staff, her husband's a neurosurgeon as well. It's not un at all unusual to have the response that sometimes happens to Mitch when you've had a severe concussion. It's part of a it's part of the recovery. And so I'm confident he's going to be back to his old self. So I'm glad that Joe Biden is speaking with Mitch McConnell. I wonder why the media does not talk about Joe Biden in the same breath that it has been talking for the past 24 or 48 hours about Mitch McConnell. Yes, I'm, I, I am very happy to talk about whether Mitch McConnell should eye a game plan for resigning gracefully, although I do note that the current governor of Kentucky is a Democrat, so you'd want to really make sure that the replacement mechanisms are in place there to ensure that his successor is not a Democrat. That would That would be terrible for McConnell's legacy, of course. Happy to have those conversations, happy to talk about whether he should step down from Senate minority leader. Hey, frankly, not that the other potential candidates are that much more compelling. I mean, John Thune of South Dakota, John Barrasso of Wyoming, John Cornyn of Texas. You know, these are not exactly the most inspiring of conservatives, shall we say. But happy to entertain that conversation. But at least be intellectually consistent about it. Acknowledge all the glaring ways that Biden himself is making an utter mockery of the United States at a time when we need strong presidential leadership with his serial misstatements, his talking about Bo Biden dying overseas in Iraq as opposed to dying from cancer, his deeply insensitive lies to the people of Maui still suffering from this horrific, horrific wildfire by comparing that to a fire at his house where Biden says that, like his wife barely escaped. The local police in Wilmington, Delaware, described that as a small kitchen fire. They call it a gaffe, call it a lie, I don't care. The guy is full of you-know-what. And for that matter, what about Dianne Feinstein, who was in considerably worse shape than Mitch McConnell? Look, I am a big proponent of age limits, which has become one of the topics of the week after this latest Mitch McConnell freeze. We have minimum ages for our elected officials, 25 to run for House, 35 years of age to run for the president, and so on. It's right there in the Constitution. I, I see no reason why we should not have mandatory retirement ages as well. The, the U.S. Supreme Court is a pretty darn good example as well. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, before she passed away, was absolutely ancient. And I've never met her. I can't say one way or the other whether her mental faculties had declined. But surely, 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 both parties, all movements should be able to come together to support age limits, mandatory retirement ages, I frankly think should be more pervasive for the private sector. America, when it was founded, was a young, optimistic, 
kind of starry-eyed country. It was a new world country. It was Pollyanna-ish. It was optimistic compared with its old world European blood and soil kind of progenitors. Somewhere along the way, we have become fat, rich, decadent, and governed by a whole bunch of old people who shouldn't be anywhere near the reins of power. I hope that changes. Another thing that is trending at the national level, national level, there is a whole lot of colloquy, a whole lot of back and forth nowadays about this law review article that was written a few weeks ago. So a law review is a place of legal scholarship, and there is a piece of legal scholarship from two constitutional law professors. I actually know both of them. I had one of them as my professor twice at the University of Chicago Law School, Will Bowden, his co-author, Michael Stokes-Paulson. They put to, they put together this lengthy article arguing that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is not a particularly commonly discussed provision, actually disqualifies President Trump from being on the ballot, from running in the first place. Now, the, t the relevant text of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment reads, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector or president, vice president, and so on and so on and so on. No person who is that shall have engaged in, quote, insurrection or rebellion against the same. So against the Constitution of the United States, against an officer of the United States. So you essentially – you can't have been in, involved in what the Constitution – and this amendment was ratified in 1868. You cannot have been in, involved in what was then considered, quote, insurrection or rebellion. And the argument is that January 6, 2021 amounted to that. And then therefore he is off the ballot or should be. So we're going to get into this in the third hour of the program with Mike Davis, who has a lot of thoughts on this particular legal theory. And I know that there is a response law review article forthcoming. I'm not sure if that's quite public yet, but there is going to be a lengthy response. I will leave the co-authors' names off the airways for now, but I, I look forward to that. One of these two co-authors tells me that there were serious analytical errors in this law review article. Look, from my perspective, as someone who has dabbled in this field, I've published some legal scholarship myself. The basic problem well, – the, the, the problem is twofold. One is as a matter of actual interpretation and analysis. This is the most straightforward point. To compare what happened on January 6 with what motivated – the drafters and ratifiers of the 14th Amendment, what they had in mind, which obviously, obviously was the Confederate uprising and the god-awful United States Civil War that killed well over half a million. To compare those two events, I, I, I find utterly fatuous. It, it simply does not hold up. The Confederate insurrection sought to topple President Lincoln, the Supreme Court, all of the institutions of government and replace it with a new fundamental regime. What happened on January 6, 2021 was bad and got way out of hand, but it was a protest 
that turned semi-violent. One person died that I'm aware of, Ashley Babbitt. The, the police officer died a few days thereafter. You, you just cannot compare the two. And I don't know how – I really don't know how else to say it. It just does not meet the criterion of what Section 3 is referring to as an insurrection. The other problem of here is that this provision is not self-executing. It's unclear exactly how it is enforced. Either independent secretaries of state in liberal states like California, either they might be able – under one theory, to independently decide it's popular constitutionalism, they might be able to decide just to keep Trump off the ballot. Or alternatively, some argue that you actually need legislation, that you, Congress needs to pass legislation under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to actually disqualify Trump. This really is just silly, for lack of a better term. If you don't like Trump, the way to get rid of him is by – to not vote for him. That is what Fonnie Wilson, Alvin Bragg, and Jack Smith should have done from a criminal prosecution perspective. That is what Trump skeptical right of center law professors should be doing as well. Just don't vote for him. We don't need to concoct these harebrained legal theories that stand virtually no chance of ever being implemented to keep him off the ballot. Speaking of the law in the courts, though, Justice Clarence Thomas, who has been under fire, unjustified fire, but he's been under fire nonetheless, at least since April for the past four and a half, five months or so, by ProPublica and other websites that have been alleging ethical issues, misconduct, things like that. He's allegedly way too close for comfort with some wealthy people, including Harlan Crow, the major conservative donor who lives in Dallas, Texas. So Justice Thomas released, or technically the Judicial Conference of the United States released Justice Thomas's 2022 financial disclosure Thursday morning. And my reading of this financial disclosure is that Thomas is essentially acquitted of what all of his propagandistic haters from ProPublica to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, the idiot from Rhode Island, from folks like that. I mean, does Clarence Thomas have a close friend in Harlan Crow? Harlan Crow, again, is a major donor to conservative causes. He's on the board of numerous organizations. He owns a wonderful venue in, in Dallas, Texas called Old Parkland, which hosts speeches and debates. I actually did a debate there myself as a participant a little over a year ago in February 2022. It's a beautiful facility. Does Clarence Thomas's close friendship with a very wealthy conservative man somehow implicate his ethics? Well, no. I mean, Harlan Crow has never had a case before the court. He's never directly been involved in litigation. Who the heck cares who his personal friends are? Who the heck cares if he chooses to get a ride on his wealthy friend's private jet to a fishing trip or something like that. I, I mean, in what world is this relevant? So ProPublica really ought to be apologizing. To Sam Alito, too, by the way, who also has been the center of this. Sam Alito took the rare step of actually writing a Wall Street Journal op-ed pushing back against this. 
Look, here's the real reason why the left has always hated Clarence Thomas. Always. Going back at least as far as the Anita Hill allegations and his 1991 Senate Judiciary Committee Supreme Court confirmation hearing. They hate him because, as Clarence Thomas himself said in the 2020 documentary about him titled Created Equal, they hate him because he is, quote, the wrong kind of black man. Because he's a fiercely independent man of conservative conviction, of faith, and he does not tow the party line. That, that is why the left has always hated Clarence Thomas. They hate him as well because his preferred method of constitutional interpretation, originalism, has exploded in popularity over his three-plus decades on the court, and he is a leading proponent and expositor of it. They hate that he has helped make originalism successful. It's all grossly disingenuous stuff. And all that this amounts to, whether it's Alito, Thomas, even Neil Gorsuch has taken some slings and arrows here, it amounts to a sustained delegitimization campaign from the left against the Supreme Court for no other reason than the fact that the Supreme Court of the United States is one of the only institutions in America that the left does not uniformly control and dominate. It is not a right-wing court. It is a right-of-center court. In fact, the two justices who were in the majority least often this past term were the two most conservative justices, Justices Thomas and Alito. That is what all of this is about. So do I expect ProPublica to apologize to Justice Thomas? No. Should they? You're right. They should. Our friend and local tax expert, Greg Nunn, None Better Tax Resolution, is growing and looking for tax specialists. If you're passionate about fighting taxpayers and interested, then give Greg Nunn a call. 425-947-1967. to you by Alpine Specialty Services online at alpineclean.com. This is the part of the show where we ignore Seattle and talk about the communities that you live in. So let's start in Sammamish. There's a possible drive-by shooting in an Airbnb there. A, a man has been tragically left dead, bullet holes in the window. So, so what happened here was the man had a gunshot wound inside of a large home, which I guess is being rented out for, for Airbnb. We think that it, it appears to be a, a drive-by shooting. The residence was listed on both Airbnb and VRBO. This happened in the in the wee hours of the morning, 1.21 a.m. When the deputies arrived there, they found the man with the, with the gunshot wound inside. He was in his 60s. I, I'm not sure that we know any more facts than that at the precise moment. Uh, let's take a listen to what um, let's let's take a listen to what the sergeant with the King County Sheriff's Office said when they arrived. They found a male in his 60s inside the residence that had sustained a gunshot wound. Medics that uh, were dispatched arrived to attempt life-saving measures, but unfortunately, they were not successful. So obviously, terrible stuff here. Uh, Drive-by shootings are always among the. The most senseless, if not the absolute most senseless of shootings possible. I, I, I guess the 
the only silver lining for the for those of you listening is that this obviously is not as ubiquitous here in in this part of the country as it is in jurisdictions like Chicago, where I spent three years of of my adult's life, which seemingly just have drive-by shootings on the south side of Chicago, I I mean, every weekend. I mean, this is just a a, a totally common thing in certain cities, Chicago, St. Louis, Baltimore. Not sure that that is the the case here, but obviously just a, a terrible story nonetheless uh producer max kind of curious for for your take on this yeah this is an interesting one because it it kind of strikes me uh, as something that is a a random incident especially in a community like sammamish generally you know it's a a wealthier community and the fact that it's a an airbnb this one just strikes me as odd that uh you know it doesn't strike me as something that would be necessarily a targeted incident but we've seen even out onto the plateau in in Sammamish we've started to see an uptick of some burglaries of some violent incidents and it's one of those things that Jason talks about all the time is some of these problems that we see in, in Seattle do start to spread to some of these smaller communities, these outlying communities like Sammamish. And it's just a little bit chilling to think, you know, a, a lot of people oftentimes move to Sammamish to get out of the city, to not deal with some of the problems. And yet you see uh, just a very crazy, very unfortunate incident like this out there. Yeah, and that that is the trend to underscore, is that the crime that was once confined to fairly narrow areas just increasingly is spreading to what were what once much nicer areas. I mean... You know, my brother lives in Manhattan on the in the Upper East Side, pretty far up into the Upper East Side, too. And there was a shooting a few months ago, audible gunshots, just like two or three blocks from him. I mean, that would have been unheard of as recently as the Rudy Giuliani era of the 1990s or into the early 2000s when he really cleaned up the city. Similarly, in, in Chicago, which I just mentioned, I, I you know, when I was in law school there, crime really was confined to the south side of Chicago, and that definitely is the worst part of it. But when I brought my then-girlfriend, now-fiancé, to Chicago with me on a trip just last year, she had her purse stolen, stolen in Streeterville, a very kind of up-and-coming, very kind of a professional part of the city. So that, that trend is definitely happening nationwide. Terrible, terrible stuff. Moving on here. The Attorney General is requesting federal assistance in Everett, Yakima, and Spokane to address the fentanyl crisis there. Those of you who know me well know that this is an, an issue that I am very, very passionate about. Over the three-year period from 2019 to 2021, these counties saw a higher level of overdose death rates than the state average. And the state average, the federal average, are already way, way, way too high. Let's go ahead and listen to what the police chief of Everett, Dan Templeman, is saying here when it comes to this. If the community is looking just to law enforcement to solve the the fentanyl crisis that we're experiencing right now, um, I don't think we're going to see the level of success that we can as a community. And and that's obviously true. This is not a purely law enforcement issue by any stretch of the imagination. It is obviously a cultural issue. It's frankly a spiritual issue. Really, I mean, when Dennis Prager wrote a column about this recently, when you look into... What is happening in America right now with young people in particular, these escalating rates of loneliness, despondency, despair, depression, lack of meaning in their lives, and ultimately as tragic as it could possibly be, rising rates of suicide. All of it is tied to a a lack of purpose and meaning, the breakdown, the nuclear family. I mean, I know I sound like a stodgy old conservative boomer when I say stuff like this. It just happens to be true in this case. 
It just happens to be true. You know, last year there were between 106 and 110,000 drug overdose deaths in America. In the early 1990s, after come the Nancy Reagan, This Your Brain on Drugs, Just Say No campaign, in the early 1990s, that number was between five and 6,000. It, it has gone up by 100,000 just in my lifetime. It's terrifying and, and tragic, tragic stuff on a personal level. My second cousin overdosed and died from fentanyl-laced something. Not sure what exactly it was. This was almost six years ago now. So obviously it's not a law enforcement issue per se. What I can say is that law enforcement definitely should stop encouraging people to use drugs quote-unquote safely, which is the new thing I see at some of these music festivals. Lollapalooza in Chicago was doing this. They were like, oh, if you're going to use, use safely, use small quantities. How about just don't use? How about just don't use drugs for God's sake? I don't know. That just absolutely infuriates me. What, what do you think, Producer Max? Yeah, no, I, I'm with you 100% on that, Josh. And just taking a look at it from the local level, obviously putting resources into these major cities like Everett, Yakima, Spokane, financial resources, it's not going to be a bad thing, but but people like Bob Ferguson are just trying to, you know, I, I don't know how much the, the money is going to do. This administration, these state leaders have really, uh, they've shown that they can acquire money, but they haven't shown that they can put that money to good use necessarily. So it, I, I might be a little bit of a, a skeptic here. And, you know, this isn't necessarily the most pro uh, Attorney General Bob Ferguson show. Uh, I, I wonder if he's maybe just doing this to, to gain some political clout to support his campaign for governor. That's kind of my read on this one. Uh, that that's a shrewd read, frankly. I mean, when you ha when you have someone like this who is asking for something that doesn't quite seem right, then yeah, it is almost always going to be politically motivated. Re really tragic, though, because this is an issue that is just crying out for help. But I I I'm just not sure how much law enforcement on the back end can can do here. This crisis is way way out of hand. Okay, finally, we have a story in Tacoma where a man is helping a woman and dog after a car burst into flames on the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. So this image is is really, really terrifying of, of this car just totally into flames here. Um, really just, uh, I, I mean, really kind of makes the mind real as to how this could have happened in the first place. Automobile technology in the year 2023 is, is pretty good, frankly. Let's go ahead and listen to the man who was in the right place at the right time he was the hero here to help this woman in the burning car pulled up right in front of her jumped out of my car and right as i was jumping out she was screaming for her dog and the dog was trying to run off so i ran up i bear hugged the dog and uh, i asked the lady i said is there anyone else in the vehicle she said no you know it's a reminder that there are still some good people in this world i mean despite all the negativity that you hear from the media despite all the negativity that you hear in politics at the local state federal level all of it that there were just good people so this man joey jaswich you you are a hero you are a hero sir it's really remarkable just looking at this image of this car burning that no one died here i i'm curious if you if you have any more color to add there producer max yeah, uh, th there was a, a clip in the actual news package. It, it didn't necessarily play perfect for radio, but basically the guy, uh, Joey Jaswick, who, who saved this life, 
was late to work because of this. And I, I think it was uh, the chief or, or a representative with the Tacoma Fire Department basically recorded a, a video message excusing uh, Joey for being late for work because he saved somebody's life, which uh, if there's a good enough reason to be late for your job, I'd say saving somebody's life is probably a, a fair enough reason to show up a little tardy. And here's the money quote from from Joey here where he says, quote, if you have a chance to help someone, help them. I, what, what a beautiful mantra. I mean, if only we all could listen to that and live our day-to-day -day lives according to that. And that doesn't necessarily always mean literally jumping into a burning car to pull a helpless woman and her dog out of a car. That is certainly heroic. But whatever you can do to help someone in need, whether it's physical helping, emotional, mental, communicative, spiritual helping... That really is just the proper mentality to get into the mindset of. So uh, th this is my favorite of, of our stories that we covered here in the big local today. Just really just inspiring stuff, frankly, from Joey Jazowicz. Coming up, you pick the news coming up at 445. Story option number one, L.A. City Council votes for lawsuit. Criminal probe against Texas over migrant busing program. Or story number two, 50 Cent hurls the mic into the crowd in frustrated rage, leaves fam a gruesome head injury. Let us know what you want to hear. Text story one or story two to 1-800-465-8770. That's 1-800-465-8770. Your favorite story coming up right after this on The Jason Ranch Show. the topic on the Jason Rand show. So you pick the topic and you have chosen to talk about this LA city council lawsuit. They are voting for a criminal probe. They're trying to file a criminal probe against the state of Texas over Texas's migrant busing program. So going back to, to June of this year, Texas governor Greg Abbott has sent 435 migrants just to the city of Los Angeles. Going back a little while longer, Greg Abbott has been a, a vocal proponent, a vocal proponent of shipping migrants for the simple purpose of making these blue jurisdictions feel the pain. There is no better way to demonstrate to the open borders folks of the horrible downsides of a wide open border and illegal aliens dripping across day in and day out. There's no reason to demonstrate the downsides of that other than to make them literally feel the pain. We're going to get into this a little more in the next hour with Ryan Gerdusky, who writes a lot on these topics. But the city council in Los Angeles is trying to prosecute the state of Texas over this. I mean, there are probably some some glaring constitutional issues here as well. It's not at all clear to me what venue or jurisdiction a lawsuit of this nature would even go into. I mean, that's that's easily explained by the fact that this is not this is not about the law. This is just about politics. It's about pure political posturing by the city council in an iconic major blue city like the city of Los Angeles. You know, Greg Abbott of Texas has been on top of this. Ron DeSantis in Florida has been involved in this as well. If you remember the shipping of migrants to Martha's Vineyard, some were sent 
as well from Florida to Sacramento. Gavin Newsom, the governor there, was not particularly happy about that. New York City has actually received way more from Texas, it's worth noting, than has Los Angeles. New York City has not filed a lawsuit, in part because the mayor there, Eric Adams, is actually very sober when it comes to this issue, that he is not, not on board with stunts like the L.A. City Council, what they're trying to do here. Eric Adams has really tried to kind of set the path forward for his party in criticizing the, the Biden administration. But the city of Los Angeles has taken a a very, very, very different, very different tack here. By the way, check out our weekly Facebook update video courtesy of our friend Greg Nunn with None Better Tax Resolution. In today's video, Jason breaks down how black teens are targeting elderly Asians in South Seattle. Why, why doesn't the SPD consider this a hate crime? Check it out, courtesy of Greg Nunn and None Better Tax Resolution. Well, let's also check out what the LA City Council is actually saying about this. So Hugo Soto Martinez is a councilman on the Los Angeles City Council. Let's listen to him explain this vote for a criminal probe against Texas. The message is clear that the city of Los Angeles uh, will not accept this kind of behavior. Uh, it, it, you know, folks are, uh, the governors are doing this for political points, and that's unacceptable. You cannot be playing with people's lives in that way. And so if they did something unlawful, we want to make sure that we uncover it and we take any proper steps. So do you know why Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis and other governors, if they're so inclined, are taking actions like this, are, sh are shipping illegal migrants to other states? It, it's not for politics. It's coming at it from a place of desperation. The federal government is the primary body responsible for securing the homeland security, the national security, and the borders of this country. Now, it's worth emphasizing as well that under our constitutional structure, these states are sovereign as well. It's not just the federal government. These states are rightfully sovereign in their own right. This was the whole point of one of my favorite writings from the late great Justice Antonin Scalia in a 2012 case called Arizona versus United States. He wrote separately in that case to underscore the fact that states in our constitutional structure are also sovereign. They also have a right to exclude. But when it comes to the actual brass tacks of aerial surveillance, drones, lasers, walls, all the things that actually secure a border, when it comes to that, it, it, it is the federal government primarily in charge. So what folks like Ab are doing in Texas has by far the largest border with Mexico. They are the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of illegal crossings happen there in Texas, primarily the Rio Grande Valley there in South Texas, Del Rio, down to Brownsville, places like that. It's coming from a place of desperation. You know, look, if... The man that we just heard on the L.A. City Council, Soto Martinez, if folks like that, if they don't like what is happening, the most straightforward way to fix it is not to do your stupid little talking points like we just heard, but to make common cause with Eric Adams, the Democrat mayor of New York City, and to criticize Joe Biden and his Homeland Security Secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, who are doing nothing, nothing 
to secure the United States' southern border at a time when, as we just discussed, well over 100,000 Americans a year are dying of drug overdoses, two airplanes a year being effectively falling out of the sky in drug overdoses. Where, where are those drugs coming from? You think they're coming from Canada? I mean, I'm sure some are. But no, they're obviously mostly coming across the border with Mexico, over which the worst of the worst criminal cartels, transnational criminal organizations, the cartels have effective operational control over large swaths of the United States southern border. That is how the drugs are getting into this country. So people like Abbott who are doing this, and look, I used to live in Texas. Texas conservatives tend to have a love-hate relationship with Greg Abbott. He's not always the best on every issue, but he is dead right here. He is dead right to do this. Again, it's coming from a place of quasi-desperation. Yes, Texas can declare an what's happening on the board to be an invasion. Yes, they can deputize the Department of Public Safety, the Texas Rangers, all that. Yes, they can do all that. But there's only so much they can do. Again, the basic day-to-day -day brass tacks of border security and enforcement fall to the responsibility of the federal government of the United States. This is an issue that is, is seemingly not going away. And do I feel for people in places like New York City and Los Angeles, Chicago, that are getting the brunt of these shipped migrants? Sure. No one really wants to deal with this. The pulling out of New York City is actually extraordinary. New Yorkers don't want to deal with this. My own family in New York does not want to deal with this. But do I also feel for the people on the border – from California all the way to Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, all those states? Why should people in South Texas have to deal with all of the problems, the national security, economic, and social and cultural problems that come with unvetted mass illegal immigration, cartel-driven drugs flowing in, all that? You, know, you want to talk about compassion, Mr. Soto Mart Martinez? How about some compassion for the ranchers in southern Arizona in the high Sonoran Desert who have nothing, nothing to do but to throw up their arms and say, I'm here, help. Maybe best case scenario, they can arm themselves. This is the Wild West after all. If, if the government's not going to se secure the border and enforce the law, maybe the ranchers have to. Have some compassion for those guys. So the compassion here is just entirely misplaced. I, I can say as someone who was in Los Angeles as recently as about five months ago, I was there for a wedding, I can say that I have no doubt that these migrants being shipped there are certainly not helping the urban situation in downtown Los Angeles at all. Downtown Los Angeles, the, the homelessness and, and needles being strewn all about there, really, really quite bad really quite bad. So you know what? If I were on the LA City Council, here's my here's my unsolicited advice for you, members of the Los Angeles City Council. Focus a little less on suing Greg Abbott in Texas in a comical stunt lawsuit that will never, ever, ever go anywhere. 
and focus a little more on fixing your own backyard, on cleaning up the filth that is all across downtown Los Angeles, that frankly was all across Santa Monica when I lived there, or excuse me, when I, when I stayed there for the wedding I was at in late March as well. Los Angeles is not in a good state right now. But if you think that the current state and, and decrepitation, decrepitude of Los Angeles is due to Texas, give me a break. Look in your own mirror and vote the bums on the city council out of office.